our nation's history of dealings with the Native Americans, you'd be right to be suspicious of what these German settlers were going to do once they got this treaty signed. But this actually has a happy ending. The Musbach-Comanche Treaty is believed to be the only unbroken peace treaty ever made between Native Americans and U.S. settlers. I don't know if this has something to do with it or not, but the uh, federal government was not involved in this treaty at all. <laughs> I don't know if that there's a connection or not, if that just so happened. So both the Comanche and the German settlers proved themselves to be trustworthy. They held up their end of the bargain. They, the uh, settlers didn't, didn't interfere with the hunting grounds of the Comanche. They let them come and go as they pleased. And for their part, the Comanche also allowed the settlers to survey the land and uh, set up their towns and go about their lives without, <clears throat> excuse me, without threat or harassment. Now, the reason I bring that up is because today's passage is about a treaty also, a covenant, which is the same concept as a treaty. And this covenant, as you would imagine, is a covenant between God and the nation of Israel. In this final chapter, <clears throat> in this final chapter of Joshua, the Lord calls Israel to recommit themselves to the covenant that he had made between him and, their, and these people. And uh, considering our knowledge of human nature, you can imagine how this will turn out down the road. But let me just say that that's not, that spoiler is not included in this chapter. Okay, so as far as we know, everything's good. Israel's going to uphold their end of the bargain. But you and I do know the rest of the story. So let's look at how this covenant renewal unfolded in Joshua chapter 24. It begins this way. The Lord reminds Israel of his grace. Since the Lord is gathering Israel to renew them in their covenant commitment, he reminds them of what he's done for them. And before I read verses 1 to 13, I want you to look at this view of that whole section with all the actions of God highlighted. Now, I realize that may be too small for you to read, but just look at all the places that are highlighted where God is saying, this is what I did. I took, I brought, I gave, I delivered. One of the main themes of the book of Joshua is that God does the work of the sal for the salvation of his people. Joshua, as you'll recall, the name Joshua means the Lord is salvation. And again and again through this book, we see that ultimately it is the Lord that is bringing Israel salvation, not their own wisdom or strength or skill. God is ultimately responsible for Israel's victories and their prosperity. Okay, so now we're going to look at the text, and uh, we'll get a readable size up on the screen for you. So look at verses 1 through 13 with me. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, and the officers of Israel, and they presented themselves before God. And Joshua said to all the people, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Then I took your father Abraham from beyond the river and led him through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and to Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau. And I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, that Jacob and his children, excuse me, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it, and afterward I brought you out. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and you came to the sea. And the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between you and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes saw what I did in Egypt, 
and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites, who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited, he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I, <clears throat> excuse me, so I delivered you out of the hand, delivered you out of his hand. And you went over the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. So now that the conquest of Canaan is by and large complete, as we mentioned a few weeks ago, not all of the Canaanites are driven out. The, the work had not been totally done, but it was by and large finished, and it was finished enough to the point where Israel could begin settling in the land, begin raising families without, without living a life of, of constant warfare. So Joshua is then led by God to gather the nation's leaders to hear from him. And it says that they uh, presented themselves before God, which means probably that the tabernacle and, most importantly, the Ark of the Covenant was uh, at this location, which was the visible expression of God's presence. But I want you to notice that it says that they gathered at Shechem. Now, last week, one of the brilliant aspects of Jordan's message was reminding us that when we're reading Scripture, it's important to look back at what the scripture is referring to. In other words, God's <clears throat> constantly repeating themes and ideas. And whenever you see an important name or an important place, it's worth looking back to see if something happened there. If someone that's mentioned here did something previously, that would contribute to our understanding of the present passage. So in this case, Shechem turns out to be a very significant place in Israel's history. It was at Shechem that God first told Abraham that his descendants would possess the land of the Canaanites. And then many years later, when God called Jacob to go to Bethel to renew his devotion to the Lord, Jacob stopped at Shechem and buried his family's idols, demonstrating his commitment to serve only the Lord. So in Israel's history, Shechem is a place of covenant, and it's a place of commitment. So the Lord is once again gathering Israel to Shechem, and the purpose of this gathering is to renew them in their commitment to following him and renew them in their commitment to the covenant of God. So the Lord reviews Israel's history and his hand in this history to remind them of his gracious acts on their behalf. This chapter underscores a bedrock aspect of faith in the one true God, that our faith is rooted in history. Yahweh, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, revealed himself in actual history. He intervened in human history in tangible, visible ways. Uh, several weeks ago, Ed Rothfuss, I don't know how many of you know Ed. I saw him here somewhere this morning. Oh, there's Ed. Okay. He gave me this piece of pottery that came from his brother. His brother had participated in an archaeological dig in Israel at the biblical location of Hatzor. 
Now, this, what's interesting about this piece of pottery, and I, of course, wouldn't have known this. Uh, Ed's brother got this directly from the archaeologist. You can't see it very well, but there's a, in the center of it, there's a very dark gray section. And the archaeologist said that what that meant was that hot sore had been burned to the ground at one point, and the clay absorbed that discoloration that would never go away. And the archaeologist further observed, somewhat puzzled by this fact, that none of the cities around Hatzor had been burned. It was just this one, and he, he didn't understand why that could be. Well, Ed's brother took him to Joshua chapter 11, where it says that J Joshua and Israel burned Hatzor, but they left all the cities around, probably because Hatzor was a military stronghold or something of, of strategic importance, and they didn't want the Canaanites to retake that. So my point in bringing this up is that what God is telling us about is real, live human history. It's something that happened in real time. It is not simply a made-up story in order to illustrate a point. It is true story that God is giving to us. And that's the only reason that God recounting all these things that he did is of any use to Israel. Because it wouldn't prove God's trustworthiness if he hadn't actually done these things. Without that true aspect, the stories of God's mighty acts don't prove any more than the stories of Zeus's mighty acts. You can tell me that Zeus did any great thing, and it won't mean anything toward my regard of Zeus, because I know it's just made up, completely mythological. But in God's case, this is one of the things that separates true religion from false religion, trustworthiness, and truthfulness. And here at Shechem, the Lord recounts some of the, these true acts that he performed to demonstrate his character and his power on Israel's behalf. He begins at the very beginning, the call of Abraham. Now, this was shocking to me when I discovered this as an adult. Abraham, before God's call, was a pagan. Abraham worshipped other gods. God said, you know, your fathers, Terah, who was the father of Abraham and Nahor, they served other gods beyond the river, beyond the river Euphrates. There's nothing in Scripture to indicate that Abraham was any more spiritual or more moral than the rest of the people of Ur, the Bible doesn't even say that Abraham was searching for the one true God. God says that Israel's ancestors worshipped other gods and that he took Abraham. God chose Abraham out of his own free and unbound grace, and he graciously called him out of that pagan worship and revealed himself to Abraham, ultimately bringing him into covenant with himself. What God is reminding Israel is that they owe their very existence as a people and their status as the people of God completely to the unmerited favor of God. He chose them out of his grace. Then the Lord summarizes the journey from Abraham to a large nation living in slavery in Egypt. He reminds them that he brought them out of slavery in Egypt. He parted the sea before Israel, and then when Israel was being pursued by the Egyptian army, God caused that sea to come crashing down on the Egyptians and destroy them. It was the Lord who gave them victory over Egypt. It was the Lord who gave them victory over all the peoples of Canaan. And he finishes his speech by reminding them of his role in their present state. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. One of the things that is often used as an argument against the truthfulness of Joshua is that there's very little archaeological evidence of widespread destruction that you would expect from a conquest. But scripture is very clear that they were not trying to destroy everything because God was giving them this land. So he wanted them to use the fields that were already there. He wanted them to live in the cities that were already there. 
Israel, remember, God is saying, remember it was the Lord your God who did all this for you. Remember that the Lord has given you grace from the beginning of your nation until now. And what is true for Israel is true for 21st century Christians as well. We owe our status as God's people to God and God alone. Who did the work of salvation? It was the Lord God himself. Who, what did you contribute to the work of salvation? Does anybody want to stand up and tell me about what you contributed to your salvation? We would all scream heretic at you. <laughs> we contributed nothing to the, to the work of salvation. It was all the work of the Lord God, Jesus Christ. As the old song says, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. Romans 8.30 says, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You did not predestine yourself. You did not call yourself. You did not justify yourself. And you cannot glorify yourself. It is all the work of our sovereign king. It is God who gives us spiritual victories. It is God who gives us rest. It is God who guides us and keeps us. So I exhort you this morning, remember God's grace on your behalf. Rehearse your own personal history of God's gracious works in your life. What has God done for you? When has he answered a prayer? How did he bring you to know Christ? When did he deliver you from a desperate situation? Remember what the Lord has done and be strengthened in your faith and trust in him. After giving God's message to Israel, Joshua charges Israel to serve the Lord. Now it was obvious that God had a purpose for gathering Israel together to rehearse his mighty acts on their behalf. So Joshua, after speaking God's message, then, like any good preacher, gives Israel the application for this message. So look at verses 14 and 15. So first he said, this is what God is saying. And he goes through that uh, overview of God's work on the behalf. And then this is Joshua speaking. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. The good and holy response to God's gracious acts is worship. Fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Look at all that God has done for us, Israel. He's shown us that he's the one true God. He's shown us that he has chosen us as his people. He's shown us that he loves us and will care for us and that he'll be faithful to us. Therefore, fear him and serve him. Commit to Yahweh wholeheartedly. Joshua tells Israel to show their sincerity by putting away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. The gods of their ancestors beyond the river and the gods of Egypt, where they spent hundreds of years, were probably still secretly worshipped by a number of them in the nation. So Joshua exhorts them, clean that out, put it away, make a clean break, repudiate these other gods, and give yourself wholeheartedly to the one true God. As Jacob buried his family's idols at Shechem, Joshua is now urging Israel to do the same, bury the idols. And then Joshua gets really sarcastic. He says, if it's evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Uh, now, you guys have probably seen this phrase, choose this day whom you will serve. It gets used a lot, you know, in Christian circles. But when Joshua said that, 
He wasn't saying, choose between God and the false god. That was after he said, okay, if you're rejecting Yahweh, then choose between these other false gods. That's your choice then, if you're rejecting God. Obviously, it was not evil in their sight, but his point is that if you are not going to commit wholeheartedly to Yahweh, then it is as if you are saying, well, that's not the best thing. It's, it's less than good for me to commit wholeheartedly to Yahweh. Joshua finishes his exhortation by telling the people his determination to follow the one true God. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Joshua is saying, look, I, I don't care if you guys do apostatize. If you turn away to these other gods, if you go back to them, I am following the Lord who has shown himself true and faithful to me. The Lord has shown, to be, <clears throat> excuse me, shown himself to be superior to the gods of their ancestors, the gods of Egypt and the gods of Canaan. Unlike the gods beyond the river, Yahweh spoke to Abraham. He was not mute. He miraculously provided a child for him. And in Egypt, Israel got to see God visibly defeat the gods of the Egyptians as one plague after another demonstrated God's superiority over them. And he had shown beyond doubt that he was greater than the gods of the Canaanites by driving them out of their land. Could any Israelite seriously doubt that the Lord alone is truly God? Well, the same question could be asked of us today. We aren't, ser- excuse me, we aren't tempted to serve Baal or Ra, but we are tempted to serve gods with names like money or power or pleasure. When it comes to being tempted to put something or someone in God's place, we're no different than the Israelites. Your God is who or what you look to for your salvation, who or what you trust in to fulfill and satisfy you. And the Lord is reminding us this morning of his greatness and goodness. And he's calling us to serve him, which is another way of saying worship him. The only way to do that, the only way to truly worship God, of course, is through his son, Jesus Christ, putting your faith in what he has done, receiving his forgiveness and being brought into his family. Israel only had pictures of Christ to trust in. They had the sacrificial system, which pictured someone else or something else suffering on your behalf. But you and I, in our day, we're on the other side of the cross. We can look back and see the perfect Son of God who gave himself for us. The perfect Son of God who absorbed all the wrath of God on our behalf. That we could be free simply by trusting in him. If you're already a believer, these verses should motivate you to be renewed in your devotion to the Lord. Remember his great salvation. Remember his super abundant grace and follow hard after him. So how does Israel respond to Joshua's charge? Well, Israel vows to serve the Lord. The Lord has laid out his record of grace, and Joshua has urged the people to serve the Lord. So following Joshua's example, Israel boldly proclaims that Yahweh is their God. Look at verses 16 to 18 with me. Then the people answered, and remember what Joshua just said. Okay, if it's evil to serve God, then choose between these false gods, but I'm going to serve him. And so Israel answers this way, far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did those great signs in our sight, and preserved us in all the way that we went, and among all the peoples through whom we passed. And the Lord drove out before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we also will serve the Lord, for he is our God. We know it was the Lord who delivered us from slavery. We know it was the Lord who did these great things. We know it was the Lord that is responsible for our victories in the land of Canaan. 
who gave us the cities we're dwelling in and the fields that we're eating from. So how could we even entertain the thought of serving other gods? Far be it from us. There's no debate necessary, Joshua. We don't have to discuss it. We don't have to take a vote. We don't have to deliberate. We will not forsake our Lord. We will serve him because he is our God. It's a beautiful and clear commitment to serve the Lord and only the Lord, exactly what Joshua was urging them to do. But Joshua doesn't stop there. He wants Israel to take this with the utmost seriousness, so he pushes back. Look at verses 19 and 20. But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. You are not able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. What on earth, Joshua? I almost said heck, but I didn't. What on earth are you doing, Joshua? The, the people are like, okay, yes, the Lord spoke to us, reminded us of his grace and awesomeness. We are going to serve him just as you're urging us to. Yes, we're going to serve him. And then Joshua rebuts them. No, you, you can't do that. You cannot do that. God's holy. You're unholy. This is going to be a problem. If you say that you'll serve the Lord, this is Joshua, paraphrase it, pray, <laughs> paraphrasing Joshua. If you said you'll serve the Lord and you don't, then it's going to turn out badly for you. Okay, right now you're resting in the land, you're at peace. But if you say you're going to serve God now and you turn away from him, you're going to be removed from the land. God's going to bring oppressors to destroy you and to conquer you. Joshua was reminding them of the awful consequence of turning away from the Lord. If you break this covenant, he will not forgive your transgressions. Now, I'll get into that again in a little bit. Uh, but let's go ahead and see how Israel responded to this somewhat sharp rebuttal. Verses 21 to 24. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will. We will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses. He said, then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, the Lord our God we will serve and his voice we will obey. After hearing Joshua's dire warning of the consequences of breaking this covenant, Israel emphatically restates their devotion to God. No, but we will serve the Lord. So Joshua calls them to count themselves as witnesses against themselves, and then he pushes them to follow through again on their commitment with some action. Put away the foreign gods that are among you. Clean the camp of idolatry. If your heart is sincere, then your actions will follow. And Israel agrees to do just that. We will obey the voice of the Lord our God. And then to conclude this great assembly, Joshua renews Israel in their covenant with the Lord. God has recounted his history of gracious acts. Joshua has urged Israel to serve the Lord wholeheartedly, and Israel has vowed to, to do just that. We'll put away the foreign gods, completely repudiate and reject them. We will serve Yahweh Elohim, the one true God. So Joshua formalizes and memorializes the event. Look at verses 25 to 28. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. 
And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth tree that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. So Joshua made a covenant that day. He wrote down the rules by which Israel should live, undoubtedly a restatement of the Mosaic law. And then he set up a large stone as a memorial to serve as a mute witness to what had been said and what the people had, had vowed. Now this was a renewal of the Mosaic covenant, the Mosaic covenant which is based on blessing and cursing. Obey me, you remain in the land in my favor. Disobey, turn away, you will be removed from the land and under my wrath. Now clearly God's purpose in this passage is to urge his people to be fully devoted to him. Joshua didn't have the revelation that we have, but he did go into a pretty deep truth when he said, you are not able to serve the Lord God, excuse me, to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. Now, I mentioned I would get back to that, so I'm going to do that now. This is the problem with the Mosaic Covenant, mankind's inability to faithfully obey the Lord. The covenant itself is good, holy, righteous, and perfect, but it highlights the sinfulness of man. It can't bring peace between us and God because we can't fulfill its demands. The covenant that Joshua renewed that with Israel that day, as I mentioned, is based on the blessing and cursing principle. Your rest in the land, your living under God's favor is based on your faithfulness to this covenant. But praise God, he did make another covenant, as you and I know, the new covenant of Jesus Christ Romans 8 says, For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. The law of Moses, again, was perfect, but it could not make us righteous. All it could do is say, You are falling short, and you deserve to be condemned. Paul goes on to say in Romans, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. So this is the message that I want to press on you today. Because of what the Lord has done for us, we should serve Him wholeheartedly. That is God's call. But even when we don't, He keeps us in His favor because Jesus did serve God wholeheartedly. Jesus did fulfill the righteous requirement of the law. Our aim, the desire of our hearts, should be to serve, to worship, to honor, to obey, and to give God glory. But we can't do that because we're fallen creatures. We can't do that consistently or perfectly. But when we trust in Christ, His perfect righteousness, all that beautiful reputation and life of obedience and faithfulness, all of that is credited to us. So even though in practice we fall far short of God's standard, our status as beloved children living in God's favor is sure because our status is based upon the work of Jesus Christ. In Philippians 3, Paul said that he wanted to be found in Christ not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law because he knew that righteousness would be defective and it would not be acceptable. But the righteousness he wanted was that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Our rest in Christ does not depend on our faithfulness to God's law. 
It depends on Christ's faithfulness to God's law, which was perfect, and that can never be changed. Romans says that God has demonstrated his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So in view of his marvelous grace, in view of his boundless mercy, we should present ourselves, as Romans 12 says, as living sacrifices. We should offer ourselves to the Lord's service. We should pursue the glory and honor of our king. Serve everything, excuse me, serve the Lord with everything you have, your time, your talents, and your possessions, but keep trusting in Christ and Christ alone as the ground of your standing with God. Rest in his perfect work and know that you are favored by God because you are united to Christ by faith. Now, if you don't know Christ, if you haven't trusted in him for salvation, I urge you to do that this morning. When the service ends, there, as always, there'll be people in front of the stage here, all of whom would be willing and enthusiastic to talk to you about what it means to trust in Christ, to pray with you about receiving his free salvation. The Bible says that everyone outside of Christ is living under God's wrath, his anger towards sin. But that wrath was laid on Christ on the cross. And so when you trust in him, what he suffered is credited to you, and there's no more wrath of God toward your sin. Now, you will still sin, but you are no longer living under God's disfavor and wrath. In view of this truth, a few thoughts for you. One would be to praise the Lord Jesus for his perfect service. Thank you, Christ Jesus, that you did perfectly obey. Thank you that I can stand on your record. I can walk boldly into the throne of grace because of the record of Jesus Christ and because of what he has done, because I am not presenting myself before the Father on my own merits. I am presenting myself on the merits of Jesus Christ, which are absolutely perfect, spotless, and unblemished. So praise the Lord Jesus for his faithful service to God. Another idea would be to memorize Hebrews 9:14 which says this, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. The how much more he's contrasting is between is the blood of Christ versus the blood of these animal sacrifices. In the Old Testament, <clears throat> the blood of Christ, unlike those sacrifices, is able to take away our sins and purify our consciences to serve the living God. And finally, let me encourage you to reach out to a believer that you know that's far from the Lord. Remind them of the Lord's grace and his faithful love. Now, leave it up to your judgment to decide how to do that. You know, God, there are so many truths about God and his grace and when you're dealing with someone, either giving them advice or just trying to encourage them, they don't need to hear everything, right? They need what is most apt to their situation. So ask the Lord for wisdom to share what is most apt about God's grace and his faithful love. But tell them what Jesus has done for them. Remind them again, Jesus died for you. He gave his blood that you might live. He loves you. He wants to be with you. And he is showing his grace just by me speaking to you. That's how much he cares about you and wants you to be close to him once again. Christ Jesus was faithful to the Father. And so because of that, even though we should be perfectly faithful, we should serve the Lord wholeheartedly at all times, even when we don't, we can still live in his favor because Christ Jesus has done so. Let's all stand.
Heavenly Father, in the name of your great son Jesus, I come before you and I thank you, Lord, for this passage that we have looked at today. I thank you for this reminder of your great acts on behalf of Israel. I thank you, Lord, for this reminder that you call us to be in covenant with yourself and to serve you wholeheartedly. I thank you, Lord, for that calling. And I also thank you that even when I fall short of that calling, even when my heart gets divided, even when I grow cold, you are still faithful to me because it is the work of Jesus Christ that puts me in your family. It is the work of Jesus Christ that gives me the standing of beloved child. Lord, I pray if there is anyone in this room that does not know you, that you would communicate the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ to them, that you would convict their heart of sin and convict their heart of righteousness and salvation and forgiveness found in Christ. And Lord, for those who are far from you, I pray that you would encourage them with your beauty and your love and your faithfulness. Help them to know, Lord God that you will not refuse them if they come back to you, that you are even now pursuing them and reaching out to them and continuing to love them. And for those, Lord, who are close to you right now, who are part of your family and they are solid and mature believers, I pray that you would encourage them and renew them in faith in your son. You are great beyond measure, O oh God. We praise you and we honor you and we ask for you to use us this week to glorify your name. In the name of Christ Jesus, I pray. Amen. God bless you all, and to all the fathers, happy Father's Day.